be here. You guys have been really we've made it we've made a huge investment. Uh, camp's hard work. Uh, I know it's hard for you, and you, you all just see me sitting around telling you what to do. It's it's hard work for us. It's weeks before camp, and it's weeks after camp, and it's a lot of money. We've yet to ever make a profit off a of camp. No, I'm trying to figure that out somehow to profit, but we have uh, we have spent our time, our money, and it's worth every every moment that we've spent. And uh, any any time we can influence young people to serve God and to change the world, I want to do that. And it's an honor to be here. It's been a year since I've been here. I've been pastoring for six years now, uh, part time, and been working full time. And then we run the missions camp, the activities, the other stuff. Uh, in our spare time. Um, so this, this is an honor for me. I resigned from my business and from my church in October, so now I'm free, and I, uh, this is what really one of the first things I wanted to do was to try to be here when I had the opportunity. So five years ago when I was here, though, I, I was a little more intimidated because I, I, I can't remember exactly, but I know that, that Pastor Van Gelder was here, and I, I think that maybe Brother Jim or Brother John was here. And all I remember is they were sitting behind me and... Uh, that's intimidating. I don't tell everybody this, but I dropped out of high school when I was in 10th grade. So that's the extent of my education. And so the more doctors I get behind me, the more nervous I get. And uh, for me to be able to stand here and preach to you is a, a miracle that the Lord has done in my life. 17 years old, God changed my direction. I was already saved, but God changed my direction drastically, or, or as I would say, dramatically. Uh, so, you guys don't even get that. It's supposed to be dramatically. Uh, it was a dramatic change in my life. My wife knew me at 16 years old, and she didn't want anything to do with me. At 18 years old, she asked me to marry her. So, God changed my direction Ms. Clary, I'll clarify that with you later, but that's mostly true. God changed my heart. God changed my heart. And, and I know what you're thinking is, is, preacher, we're already in the right place because we're here, right? We're already here. But some of us haven't had that heart transformation. You might be here and still be living selfishly. At 16, I had my desires lined out, my goals in my life. I had, I had planned out my life. I knew everything. And so I wanted, I was selfish. I had selfish desires. My selfish desires were taking me into uh, engineering to make money. It was taking me to Montana to be alone. It was, you know, a uh, truck, four-wheeler, and a dog. I hadn't even thought about a wife, honestly. Uh, truck, four-wheelers, dogs, you know, deer hunting. That, that's really to, just to be alone. That was kind of my desire. I uh, didn't do well in school because I didn't like people. I didn't like my teachers. Uh, I did oral book reports. I would stand in the class, cross my arms, and stand there for my three minutes or whatever I had, and then go sit down and take zeros. So I, my grades were not well. And, uh, man, I was selfish. Everything revolved around me. Everything I did was me. You say, preacher, that's not me. Well, can I tell you something? You know, you can serve the Lord and dress up and go to church and still be all about you. So I, I don't know where you're at this morning, but I'll tell you this, you need that experience with God where you're broken, where you're surrendered, and where you give your life completely and fully to Christ. So for me, I was 17 years old, but I have not stopped breaking since then. I've had some bad days since then. I've done some things that I regret, some things wrong, but I have never had a day that I've ever really regretted 
that moment when I surrendered to Christ. I've never really looked back. And I, w- I want to share a little bit with you this morning about freedom. John chapter number 8. It's been, it's been a busy month. It started in October, and, and we have been uh, away from our church now for, this would be, I think, eight weeks we've been away from our church. I'll be back at our church next Sunday. It'll be our first Sunday then in, in a couple months. Looking forward to being back there, but we've been on the road, and I was in the Comoros Islands, and then came home from the Comoros Islands, and my wife was gone when I came home, and then she came home, and I was gone, and uh, went to Texas for a conference. I flew her down to meet me, and I was sick the entire time, so she left and went and hung out with a friend, um, left me in the hotel sick. So we, we've been busy in saying that God has used that to keep my heart tender. You ever get tired? I, I got tired in the last few weeks, and my wife picked me up there she had been flew into texas and she picked me up and we sat in the parking lot we were supposed to meet the pastor for dinner i sat in the parking lot i started crying you ever do that my wife does that but i don't do that i'm sitting in the parking lot i'm just i'm just weeping in the parking lot and she's like well honey what's wrong and i said don't know you ever do that i've never done that in my life i've never and then you guys ever do that i've never done that my my wife she writes a book on that I've never done that, but I've been tired, I've been weary. You know what being weary does? Sometimes it gets you tender, makes you tender. I spent a week with a bunch of preachers in Texas, and uh, they called it a hunting trip. When I got down there, I found out it really wasn't a hunting trip. It was a bunch of hurting preachers, and I spent a week with about 20 preachers, and man, to hear their stories, um, one man lost his wife, and two children in a car accident, another man had lost his wife to cancer, another man was dying of cancer, he had just a few months to live, and so you get these 20 men in a room, and everybody's hurting in their own way, and uh, man, the Lord used that to soften my heart, and, and I like my heart tender, and so this morning, it, let's approach this subject this morning with a tender heart, if, if, if God touches your heart and you weep a little, it's okay, I, I've spent two weeks crying. I drove, I drove to Texas crying. I cried all the way to Texas. I got to Texas. I got around those preachers. We cried. Some of us cried for hours. We sat in hunting blinds, and we cried for three hours. My wife came down, and I cried, and she, I didn't even know why I was still crying. But it's an honor today. It's an honor today to serve Jesus. It's an honor to serve Jesus. It's an honor to be around the people of God. And in John chapter number 8... The context is fascinating. We don't have time for the entire context. If we could, we could read the chapter and see how it progresses. Jesus here is teaching, and the woman is brought to him, taking the very act of adultery. Boy, you talk about compassion. I have, have you ever got on the critical side of Christianity? Have you ever steered that direction? Got critical of people? I appreciated about these preachers in Texas is there was no criticism of preachers who had been broken and preachers who had fallen and preachers who were hurting. It was just people loving on each other, praying for one another. And I thought, man, this is what sometimes what we need. Jesus is always moved with compassion. That's his characteristic. He's compassionate. I understand the need for truth and the need for justice and the need to hold the line, but we should be characterized primarily by our love for one another. I know it's hard for us sometimes to demonstrate that because we see flaws in others and as we magnify their flaws, it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? Especially some of us that are insecure. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
Jesus meets this woman taken in adultery. He has compassion on her. He forgives her. He sends her away. And now people are starting to ask questions. And so as he begins to teach and preach people, he begins to reveal himself. He begins to unmask his deity and show these people who he really is. And many reject him automatically. And then some, it says here, believe. And as he continues this conversation with those who believe, we find that their belief was not very deep. Because as he begins to really reveal to him his true identity, they begin also to reject him. He makes a few statements, though, that I want to uh, examine here. Uh, it says, verse number 28, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as the Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's the first time Jesus says this. But later in verse number 36, he said, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. The truth shall make you free, and if the Son make you free, ye shall be free indeed. There is uh, a difference between knowing and knowing. Did you know that? <laughs> it's a big difference. When I was a young person, I, I knew the Bible was the Word of God. I knew that intellectually. I knew that Jesus died for my sins. I believed that, and, and I had accepted that, and I was, I was saved and on my way to heaven. But there were some other things that I had not yet accepted. I didn't really know. And let me illustrate that by giving this story as a, a child. My grandfather, my grandfather was an old World War II veteran. He was, he was a tough, he's a man's man. He was a tough man. Came out of World War II. Uh, he was an engineer there, battlefield engineer. Uh, one of the first guys into Germany, out, out of France. Walked into Germany and, and, and was there when they freed some of, the, uh, some of the prisoner camps there. He came back. He worked construction his whole life. He was a tough man. I, lo I loved my grandfather. My grandfather had a habit. He smoked cigarettes back when we rolled them. Not, I say we, back when they, back when they rolled cigarettes, it was Prince Albert in a can. Some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, but if you see little cans now in antique stores, that's what we grew up on. Prince Albert in a can, he would take the little papers, he would lay them out on his lap, he would shake the Prince Albert and tobacco come out, lick it, roll it, light it. I still, I still like the smell of it. I don't know. I just grew up on my grandfather's lap, you know, smoking Prince Albert in a can and but I realized, I realized this after a little bit of education. I thought, you know, if he keeps doing that, he's going to die. So one Saturday morning I was there. I snuck in there while Grandpa wasn't looking. I took Prince Albert. I took him to the bathroom. I shook him out in the toilet, and I flushed all of it. My Grandpa didn't have much, and he was not happy when he had to replace his tobacco. I pulled that off three or four times. I said, Grandpa, don't you know? I said, that, that stuff's going to kill you. I don't know how old I was. I was seven or eight years old, maybe. I said, it's going to kill you. He said, I know, I know, I know, I know. And he'd light up another cigarette. A couple years later, he went to the doctor. They came back. They said, Lloyd, you've got, a, uh, you've got a spot on your lungs about that big around. I said, if you continue to smoke the next few years, you're going to die. You're done. You just, you smoked your last cigarette. It's over. You know, my grandpa came home from that doctor appointment. He took the tobacco. He took it to the bathroom. He shook it out in the toilet. He flushed it. He never lit another one. Not once. Never did. He used to say, I know, I know, I know, 
but he didn't really know. He didn't really have it here. He knew the science here, but he didn't really know it here. And this subject of truth is something that you have to personally grasp. And let me ask you something. When was the time, and I'm not talking about salvation necessarily, although that is certainly applicable, but when is the moment when you in your life grasp the fact that you have been bought with a price, that you are now belong to Christ and that you were made to serve Him? You have stepped into that truth that I am not my own. Here's this truth. It says, the truth shall set you free. See, what we sometimes think is, Truth brings us into bondage. That would be the lie of the enemy that would tell you that. Because truth sets free. So he says here is that the truth shall make you free. And then he says, whoever, uh, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. That word indeed literally means verifiable. You know, the, Paul talks about the widows who are widows indeed. I mean, it, you, you've done some research. You've checked them out. They're verified. You shall be free indeed. You know, I would love to say today to you that my life over the last 20 years, I've lived free. Verifiably free. You can look and see, man. I tell you what, God has been good to me. He's blessed my life. We've had hardships. Brother Gilmore talked about our ministry began in hardship. It's where we started. We started in Malawi. We started with a lot of hardships. It was not that every day was good, but it was that every day was blessed of the Lord and led of the Lord. And it's been a good journey. I want to give you some things to think about today as we look at the subject of being free. Because until you're free, you, you can't really serve the Lord. You can't be effective in ministry. And first thing I want to talk to you about this morning is to be free from fear. Fear has a way of kind of governing us. It rules over us. Look at Hebrews chapter number 2. It's a verse I seen years ago, and when I seen it for the first time, man, I just, it caught me. And, and I, I, I tried to retain the message of this. Hebrews chapter number 2, and in verse number 14, here's what the Scripture says then. Um, for as much then... As the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15, look, and deliver them, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Fear imprisons. Truth sets free. And so here is one point that you can take away with you right now this morning that will help you is that as we study the scripture and we come to this ultimate truth, Jesus said, remember in John 14, and our, uh, yeah, John 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As we grasp truth, it sets us free from fear. Here it says all their lifetime they were subject unto fear, the fear of death. It ruled over them. They made all of their decisions based on wanting to live and, and to, to have this fullness of life. Reading this book yesterday, and he talked about uh, life being uh, cut short. Well, whose life's not cut short? Who wants to say, you know, I only want to be this age? Who, who, who isn't taken early? Anyone who's taken, we say, boy, it's a shame we lost someone we love. But here is a, a, a way in the scripture to overcome this fear of death. We understand Jesus said that I am the resurrection because you believe in me. He said, you shall live. 
And so we have to come to this point to know what freedom is. We have to overcome fear. And if you today think about this idea of death and it haunts you, it bothers you, it keeps you awake at night, friend, can I tell you something? You're in bondage and you can't really minister effectively as long as you're in that bondage. When you come to the truth of Scripture and you come to the person of Jesus Christ, you come to the work of Christ, you come to the resurrection morning, it gives us boldness to be able, even in the face of death, to continue on, and we overcome that fear. Fear imprisons. You know what Jesus did, if you read there carefully in Hebrews chapter number 2, talk about the incarnation. Jesus became man and conquered death. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 also explains? How that he took the sting out of death? So that you and I don't have to fear death? Not only fear of death, but we're subject to fear of rejection. Subject to fear of rejection. You know how many times that the Lord has led us to do something or we know what to do, but we look around first to see what others are doing? Even in a simple church service, we look around to see if someone else is going to go to the altar before we respond to what God has said. When we come to a passage of Scripture and God speaks to us, we have to uh, refer to everybody else to see if they agree with it before we would use it. We're constantly in this thing of what do other people think about us? Fear of rejection. Fear of fitting in, fear of, of, of fitting into the mold, how we dress, how we speak, all of these things that we do, we're actually governing our lives by fear instead of by freedom. I, I remember something Brother John Van Gelderen said, I believe, it, maybe it was Brother Jim. The first time I ever met him, he said, and you probably, maybe he says it all the time, maybe it's old hat for you guys. He said, Grace is waking up in the morning, looking in the mirror and saying, I don't have to sin today. I'm, I'm not like everybody else. I'm not like the world, and I like it. I'm different. I'm unique. I'm free. You know, what's a wonderful thing is to not only not be like the world, but to even be free in this auditorium right here. To not be concerned today about having to please each other. When you know the truth, you come to the, the truth, you, you get set free from the fear of rejection. You say, what, what truth would that be? The ultimate truth is the person of Christ. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. As Jesus lived, so we're called to live. You know what rejection often means to us? It often means that we're on the right track. And when you fear rejection, sometimes you're avoiding the will of God. Not only do we get set free as we come to the word of God we come to the person of Christ we're set free from the fear of death we're set free from fear of rejection we're also set free from sin and I know that you all have have already been through this in detail but one of the greatest messages I've ever heard on being free from sin was preached at this meeting in Texas preached to pastors not preached to students preached to pastors out of James there in the scripture when it talks about lust when it has conceived bringeth forth sin and he talked about you could almost say an abortion of lust. You stop it before it's ever conceived. You stop it before it ever turns into sin. And he was dealing with preachers overcoming sin. You say, why would you have to deal with pastors overcoming sin? Because sin is rampant. Sin is rampant. And we may try to hide it right here in this room, but can I tell you something? If we would get honest with ourselves and you would find a place to confess and someone to confess to and pray with, you and I would have to confess that sin sometimes dominates our lives. 
you've got your suit and tie on, you've got your Bible in your lap, but sometimes your heart is gone so far astray. Sin destroys Christians, destroys churches, destroys missionary works, destroys families. And boy, I tell you what, the more stories you hear and the more you get around church people, the more you'll see its effects on our lives. You know, you and I ought to be free from sin. So preacher, you preaching uh, perfection? Well, we ought to at least work on it, shouldn't we? What level of sin in your life is tolerable? How much sin do you think is just normal? How much things can we do that are contrary to the Word of God and we just accept them? Jesus here in this scripture, when he talks about this freedom, he talks about truth having the power to set free. Can I tell you something? The more the Word of God we get in us, the more truth we put in us, the more we invest in our walk and our relationship with Jesus Christ, the freer we become from sin because truth inevitably sets free. That's what it does. You know, when I was, I was young, I had, I had some hang-ups. And I, I was raised in church, but not like this, not like you guys. I was raised in the type of church that... Uh, you know, the, the adults did, the adults served God and the kids did not. Isn't that a shame? I don't know if you all have ever seen that. We didn't, we didn't do it. They, they just wanted us to not be in trouble. You know, if we weren't doing something really bad, that was fine. I went to a Christian school and a Christian school, I don't, I don't want to down my Christian school, but it was not very Christian. I remember things that happened there, things that would happen during school, things that happened after school was not very Christian at all. And man, we had all kinds of hang-ups. We had music hang-ups. We did rock and roll music. We did especially country music down where we're from. We even got into rap music. And back then it was Walkmans with tapes. You know, we had tapes. You had a big Walkman, you had to put a tape in it. And so we would loan each other tapes. We didn't have MP3s. And man, every locker was filled with rock music. We had, we had lockers filled with... Uh, wild turkey <laughs> that would be a strange sight no that's whiskey in a Christian school we had guys who were smoking cigarettes we had guys that, that was our brand of Christianity that's who we were and can I tell you something at 17 when God began dealing with me I had to begin to confront all of those things I had to confront music and that was a big deal for me I had to confront relationships with girls that were improper that was a big deal for me at 17 years old. But as I began to yield to the Bible, and, and I don't know where my parents were at this time in my life. They were somewhat absent. I, I remember in bed at night, opening my Bible and just starting to read at 17 years old, saying, Lord, I've never read it before. I've been in church, and I've been saved, but I've never really given myself to read and study and understand. And so I began to start reading. I remember one night I even I snuck the church key off my dad's key ring. And I, I didn't want him to know. I was embarrassed. I went up to the church on a Saturday night. I opened the church door. I went in. I laid out on the altar, and I began to pray and seek the face of God by myself at 17. And as I'm seeking God's face and as I'm getting in the Word of God, my heart is beginning to change. I'm starting to witness to people that I work with now, and God is setting me free from the things that had held me in bondage, setting me free from sin. Setting me free from music. I've never loved rock music since that night, since some of those nights there when I've committed my life. Never loved it. 
I've had a, a pure and a good, a wholesome relationship with girls, just, just one actually, since that night. God set me free from those things. And you're here this morning, you struggle with fear, you struggle with sin. I'm telling you something, the will of God is to be free. It's a wonderful thing to find freedom in Christ. Freedom from tradition. You know, this sometimes is maybe a harder one for us. You say, hey, I'm not worried about death. I'm not afraid of things. I'm not worried. I'm not in bondage to sin. Maybe it's tradition that we're in bondage to. You know, the Bible gives us very specific warnings. Book of Colossians says it, chapter 1, verse number 8. Beware lest any man spoil you. One of the things he puts in there that spoils men is tradition. The traditions of men. You know, it's a wonderful thing to be able to look at the globe, to look at ministry and look at it, holding this Bible and say, Lord, if you would show me in this book how we're supposed to impact this world, God, I want to follow your directions. It's a wonderful thing to be set free. One thing over the last few years to, that has helped my wife and I in the ministry to be able to be free is, is, is to be able to self-finance a lot of our missionary work. Now, I've, I've kind of repented of that in the other class, and I may come back to do that. But I'll tell you something, it was very freeing to be able to go to my church or our church and say, hey, this is what I see in the Scripture, and this is what God's leading us to do, and we have the money to do it, and pray over it and just go do it and not have to submit it to everybody else's opinions. It didn't have to go through new tribes or BIMI. It didn't have to go through some board. It didn't have to be regulated by anyone else. We could just simply follow the scripture. And, and, and as a New Testament believer and a New Testament church, that's a wonderful thing to find freedom. Find freedom from fear. Find freedom from sin. Find freedom from tradition. I want to give you an illustration because I want you to see the power of freedom and what it does. Freedom has some profound effects on people. It's transforming. If you have never been in bondage or never understood, notice in, in, in John chapter number 8, again, back in our, our text here, it says here, verse number 33, Jesus gives him this great spiritual insight. He says, the truth shall make you free. Verse 33, they answered him, they said, we be Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage to any man. That is a strange thing to say. Because I've read the Old Testament, and I see them in bondage in Egypt. I see them in bondage to the Midianites. I see them in bondage all over. I see right now they are under the rule of who? The Romans. They said, we're Abraham. See, we have never been in bondage. Can I tell you something? The first step to getting free is admitting that you have a problem. They're not even, they said, we've never even been in bondage, man. But to be in bondage and to be set free, it means something. The effects of freedom... The effects of freedom are very far-reaching. It's a very emotional thing to be free. Think about someone who's been set free, man, the, the, the tears that you shed. I, I give an illustration here because I want to I drive home this morning this powerful truth. Uh, Brother Gilmore actually recommended to me a, a group. Um, that does missionary training and I contacted them and Caleb and I went to Kansas City and we trained with them for a, a few days one of the men who was there uh, had flown in he was a missionary overseas and he'd flown in had worked in a Muslim country while he was in that country it, it was a strange thing happening he was in a relatively safe country 
Muslim, but relatively safe, and he was near the border of, of a very strict Muslim country, and he thought, I'm already this close. I know of a pastor over there. I'm going to take three days. Now, in this story, he did not tell his wife. Didn't tell his wife because he didn't want her to worry. So he said, I'm just going to jump over here for three days. And so he hit the border to this other country. As he crossed into that country, things begin to go wrong quickly. And within an hour, within an hour, his car was confronted by armed men, long beards, big robes. They took him from his car, the taxi that he was in. They put the taxi driver back in the car. The taxi driver got in and left. And here he is with his suitcase standing there in front of these men. For the next 18 months, he was held by an Al-Qaeda affiliate there. Man, he's telling us this story. It was, it was, it was captivating. I, I want you guys to meet him if I could ever put it together. It took about four hours. For about four hours one morning, he just told the story. And as he, he tells this story, he begins to talk about the threats that they would make to him, how they would threaten him, and the pressure that's on his family. His wife got a Facebook message from his captors that said, we have your husband. He's in this country, and we've taken him. He wasn't even supposed to be in that country. His wife didn't even know. He had with him there some excerpts from her diary as she began to record this uh, story. She began to put in her diary, and on day number three, now he's three days in, she writes in the top of the diary, I hate you. I hate you. So the emotional trial, all this stuff that's going here, and, and they're threatening him every day. They said, Today you're going to die. And they would threaten him, and they would put stuff on They beat people to death in front of him for 18 months. Moldy bread and water out of the cell once a day to use the toilet. Man, as he tells this story, friend, let me tell you something that's powerful. Talks about the despair of, of, of how much they hurt physically and how lonely they were and how terrible things were. And then he talks about days where it seemed like as though God himself would come down into the cell and they would fellowship with the Lord and, and God would move into that place. And he, he tells the story as an emotional roller, just listening to him is an emotional roller coaster. He said, when I was finally set free, he said, I just cried for three months. He said, I would just, he said, my wife didn't know what to do. I would just lay there and cry for three months. He said, I cried. So as he brings us into this story and he begins to tell us what it's like to be in bondage, what it's like to, to, to have to plead for food and to have nowhere to bathe and to be around people who hate you and, and disgust you. And to listen to them as they pray, I tell you what, even in Comoros just recently, one night, all night long, I don't know what happened. It was on a Friday night. They read the Koran and they prayed the entire night on a loudspeaker. And I literally woke up in the morning reciting some of the Koran. That's how impacting it was. In my mind, I couldn't escape it all night long. It just went on. And now this is 18 months. It's relentless. He's, he, he has no negotiating power. He has no communication with his family. He left, when he left the airport, he looked at his 15-year-old son and said, you're the man of the house. Take care of, your fa take care of the family while I'm gone. And he said, every morning I woke up and thought that was the stupidest thing. He said, I wish I could take those words back. He said, that young man has no way to make a living. He has no way to support the family. And he said, I put pressure on him. And he said, now I'm going to die here. And he said, he's going to have to live under that weight. 
And so he takes us through this journey and he takes us for the first time in my life, I understood what it was really like to be in bondage. For four hours, he told this story. And he told us one day, he said, they came to him one day, they said, get your stuff. And he said, we've done this before. He said, they had moved to nine different prisons. So as he'd moved nine times before, they said, get your stuff. They put him in the back of the car. They drove to a place. He had no idea where he's at in the country. He always had a bag over his head. He said, they drove to a place. They set him out on the road. And he thought, well, this is it. They're going to kill me here. So they took the bag off of his head. They said, just walk down the road. You're free. And he said, they've done stuff like that psychologically to me before. He said, I didn't believe it. He said, so I'm walking down the road thinking in any minute they're going to come and get me. They'll beat me. They'll put me back in the cell. And he said, I walk down the road. And he said, I go over a rise on the hill. And he said, I look down. And he said, there are two blonde-haired men standing there. And he said, all of a sudden, he said, I knew this was it. And he said, man, those blonde-haired guys came to me. He said, I didn't know them. He said, I fell into their arms. He said, they put me in the car. And he said, I wept like a baby. He said, he wept all the way to the embassy. They took him to the embassy. They said, you can have anything that you want. What do you want? He said, I want McDonald's. That's what he wanted. He said, I thought about it for 18 months. Made that decision. It was, it was in stone. They said, you could have had champagne and lobster. Champagne and caviar. They said, you, should, you could have had champagne and caviar. He said, I want McDonald's. He said, I called my wife. And he said, for the first time in 18 months, I heard her voice. He said, we wept together. He said, I called my son. And we rejoiced together. He's free. Do you understand the difference? Joy. He said, joy. He said, now, he said, I didn't ever know what joy was. He said, now I know what joy is. He said, I wept. He said, I rejoice. He said, we sat there and we ate McDonald's and we laughed. And he said, then we would bust out into a song. We'd just start singing. So he just burst into song. You ever just burst into song? So we just sing. At the top of our lungs, man, praise God. He said, I flew home. He said, I seen my wife for the first time in 18 months. He said, we thought we would never see each other again. I can't even begin to tell you all of the things that he suffered. But can I tell you what freedom does? is the effects of freedom are life-changing. That moment when you realize, you know what? If I die, I'm just going to be in the presence of God. I'm going to see the holy angels, and then I'm going to stand with Christ, the one who died for me, redeemed me. That moment when you break through that right there, when you get into a dark place of the world and you get into a dangerous place and the devil as though he almost comes and sits on your shoulder and says, I'm going to kill you here. That happened to me one night in Guyana. I'm telling you something as though the devil was in my hammock that night. That's the way I felt, the darkness I felt. And you know what? It's not until I claim my freedom in Christ that I really get free from those thoughts. And it's not until I say something like this, you know, devil, you can kill me. <laughs> It'd be the best thing you ever did for me. Because as soon as you do, I'm in the presence of my Savior. You know, truth is an amazing thing. It's a powerful thing. It sets free. And when you get set free, friend, you know it. When you have crossed that boundary right there and say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about what people think of me. At 17 years old, I didn't care what people thought about me. Still don't care what people think about me, really. I try to stay free from that. 17 years old, I had to go back to my friends who uh, had been my friends all my life. None of them hardly at all serving God today. None of them. 
pastor's family and assistant pastor's family, all of those guys included, none of them serving God today. I had to confront my own church to stand for God. You know when you get free. Because the Bible says that uh, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You know, my wife seen me at 18, hadn't seen me for a year. She seen me, I was at a funeral. A friend of ours, her father was, was killed and I was at a funeral. My wife seen me at that funeral. She says, something is different about that man. The Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Free from sin, free from fear, free from tradition. Caleb and I was able to work with that team that night. I went as a spectator and the, the instructor of, of the, uh, the program there. He said, hey, man, you guys give us a hand. He opened up, he opened up the, the doors to what I call his arsenal. He had RPGs. He had, he had improvised explosive devices. He had just boxes of, of M4s and AKs and all of this stuff. He's like, guys, suit up. And so Caleb and I suited up. We got M4s. We loaded them with blanks. Uh, had 30 rounds in them. And he said, we, we're going we're gonna to do something here. He said, we, we have uh, a group that we've detained. And some of you guys know what that's like. But you don't know what this was like because the guy running the detention was the guy who had been in prison for 18 months by Al-Qaeda. He's running the detention. And he has the students in detention. They have these young men up there, young ladies up there. And he says, the end of the scenario, he said, we're going to go in and we're going to do a raid on this group. We're going to kill all the bad guys and we're going to set those people free. Man, this was fun. So Caleb and I suit up. We get our gear on, all camoed out, all loaded up, magazines loaded, guns rocked and ready to roll. We come up the hill there, and there we see Al-Qaeda, man. They got about 12 guys, 10 guys up there, all geared up, AKs, all this stuff. There they've got our missionary students all down on their knees. Actually, they were in, by this time, most of them were on their knees, but they were in a little shed. It was pitch black. And we snuck up the, the hill. Of course, everybody knew what was going on except the missionary students. So we sneak up the hill. We come in behind this group of Al-Qaeda guys, and we just light them up. It's a lot of fun. I, I, can't, I, I estimate that night we fired six to 8,000 rounds before the night was done. We light the place up. They had 50 cal, fully automatic 50 cal simulators. It was pretty impressive. It's a $7,000 simulator. I'm going to buy one. <laughs> We light them up, and here's these Al-Qaeda guys. They're fighting. They're screaming back to us in Arabic. They're cursing us, and they're falling down on the ground. You know, if we had had blood, we'd have had a really good time. They're falling down, and we're knocking them down, and we're going in there, and all of these missionary students are there, hands behind their bag, bags on their head. They can't see what's going on. They don't know what's happening. We go in there, pull the bag off their head, stand them up, and say, hey, you're free. Come with us. And it was an awesome experience. Caleb is one of the last guys in there. We grab all these missionary students. We're looking at them. We're pulling them out. And we're counting them to try to make sure everyone's there. And Caleb looks over. And I hate to, I hate to let this out because this is something that's going to happen at camp one day. We look over and there's a pet carrier. There's a pet carrier there. Not a cat one, a dog one. Caleb looks over in the dark and he sees there's two feet sticking out of the pet carrier. Somebody up inside there with a bag on their head. They don't know what's happening. All they hear is screams. 
Caleb goes over, he opens the door, the pet carrier, he reaches in, he pulls the guy by the collar, pulls him out, pulls the bag off his head, he sets that man free, and we run down the hill. We get down to the flagpole, and the instructor, the guy who's running the course, he says, guys, everybody take a knee. He says, it's over. That's it. We're done tonight. Can I tell you something? Well, Mark, they'd been two hours in prison. Two hours in prison. These young ladies are hugging. They're crying. Big, strong guys are crying. Two hours. They were in prison. But now, they just tasted freedom. It's like they tasted it for the first time. They were free two hours ago. They're free again. Two hours ago, they weren't singing or crying or hugging, but now they really tasted it. They really understood it. They now understand. You see, the Bible says, you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. You say, preacher, we already know that. I can quote half of this book. You know it, but have you ever really tasted freedom? To walk by something that, that is pornographic, something that's dirty, and to walk by and say, no, I don't do that. Just to know what it is to be free. To walk by something that used to terrify you and say, you can't scare me with that anymore. I'm free from that. I don't like to fly. That's just one of my things. I don't like, I, I'm scared to death to fly. You know what I do? I get on the plane. I get on the plane and say, Lord, maybe the best thing that can happen to me today is this plane go down. I just be in the presence of God. So if that's the way it's going to be, so be it. And then we get into turbulation. Kathy and I was on a plane coming back from Europe and, and the, the cabin filled with smoke and people started running. Flight attendants running around with fire extinguishers and all this stuff. And Kathy and I were watching a movie. We took our headphones out. She said, what do we do? I said, finish the movie. <laughs> so, what are you going to do? I'm free. Let me ask you something. Have you, ta- you, you say, I know the scripture, but have you tasted that freedom? That freedom in Christ that sets you free from fear, that sets you free from sin, that sets you free from tradition to where that you can stand up and say, okay, I always knew this, like tobacco. I always knew it would kill me, but now I know. I know for real now. Let me tell you something. I tasted it at 17, and I'll never go back. I don't want to go back to rock and roll music. I don't want to go back to the bondage of, of, of addiction, of pornography. I don't want to go back to fear and cowering and being afraid of all of those things. I want to live life free. We asked this man that came out of this camp, we said, what has changed in your life since you've been set free? He said, now, he said, if I want to do something, I do it. He said, I wanted a house in the mountains, I bought it. <laughs> it changed him. It changed him. He said, my wife is still adapting to the new me. And he said, I'm free now. He came out free. If the sun shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Would your friends here say, you know, that guy's free. I can see it in him. Would people look at you, young ladies, and say, you know what, that young lady's free. She's not afraid of anything. Or would we be honest with ourselves and say, you know what, I've never tasted that kind of freedom. Let's stand on our feet and however Brother Mark or someone is led to close here.